Welcome to FinCast. I'm Juan Zarati, your host on episode 32, Circle and the Crypto Ecosystem, a conversation with Dante Desparte and Mandeep Walia. The quickening pace of innovation and attention in the crypto space with stablecoins, new payment systems, and regulation. Where are we headed with the crypto economy? What does the future of the financial system look like? And what is Circle's role in driving these developments? Join us on episode 32. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. Welcome back to FinCast. Thank you for joining me. I am so lucky to be with two great professionals, great thinkers, and frankly, friends of mine, Dante Desparte and Mandeep Walia. Dante, Mandeep, welcome. Thank you, Juan. Thanks, Juan. Thank you. Just fantastic. Just to give the audience a little taste of your backgrounds, Dante, you are the Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy for Circle. Mandeep, you are the chief compliance and risk officer for Circle. I, I would dare say the two principal players in the future of how Circle operates and, and what its future will, like, will, will look like. For those listeners who don't know what Circle is, of course, it is a digital financial service firm uh, known very well in the crypto space as a virtual asset service provider. The principal operator of USD coin, USDC as it's known. Uh, the second largest stable coin out in the marketplace, worth at this point $41 billion in value, and Circle with the ambition of becoming a, a bank, announced in August by the CEO, Jeremy Allaire, who's a visionary in the space. So Dante Mandeep, welcome again. It's, it's an honor to have you with us on FinCast, and we're excited to talk to you about what's coming next in the financial system. Dante, let me start with you, because you've been out publicly quite a bit as part of your role for Circle and a role you've played with other institutions, too. You testified uh, before the Senate Banking Committee to lay out sort of the state of the crypto economy, the crypto ecosystem, where regulation and policy may be heading. Can you give the audience a sense of what you told the Senate and what your principal themes were? Yeah, no, thank you, Juan. That was, um, it, it was really, frankly, a privilege to be able to sit in the Senate, what would for many be a hot seat. Um, I actually enjoyed the opportunity because for me, what is all too often missed in the conversation about cryptocurrencies, public blockchains, and the digital asset economy is that people often dismiss this as a passing fad or a speculative series of stable coins being referred to as the poker chips in a digital currency casino and a crypto assets casino. But the lens that I come at this at, and you know this well from my background in sort of the national security conversation or the Federal Emergency Management Agency most recently, is think about the things that we could not do as a society with our money in an environment where every other aspect of our household and personal and business and political continuity depended on technology. And so I see these innovations, and I know our CEO and the rest of our company, we see these innovations as fundamental and foundational to 
the U.S. competing and winning in a world where the global economy is always on, but our currency is not, and our currency takes bank holidays. So, so that was what I was able to share with the Senate. Apparently, Senator Brown thought I was a nominee because in a follow-up uh, news interview, I was referred to as the nominee. It wasn't a Senate confirmation hearing. I just want to set the <laughs> maybe, record Dante, straight. Maybe you should be. Maybe it would be better <laughs> off if you were serving in government, perhaps. <laughs> But okay, that, that that's fantastic. And, I, and uh, for those of you who have not read or seen the testimony, I would I would commend it to you because Dante has a special way of simplifying what is otherwise a very complicated or opaque conversation. Mandeep, one of the things we've seen clearly over the last year is the legitimation of the crypto space. I, I think we've crossed the Rubicon with the integration of the crypto and other elements of the digital economy in the formal financial system. You, of course, have to worry about the risks in this environment and the regulatory pressures and the, I would say, vagaries and lack of cohesion often we see in the regulatory environment. How do you see the regulatory environment playing out, broadly speaking? Uh, And then, you know, maybe we can get into some details, but how should the audience think about where the regulatory environment's headed, and how do you feel it, given your role at Circle? Yeah, I think you're you're right, Juan. The the reality is that regulators and policymakers are definitely much more interested in this space. Even in the last two, three years, that interest has gone up dramatically. The reality is that there's an underlying recognition that this technology is, at its very core, growing exponentially. There are lots of users coming online every single day. And the regulators and policymakers have to work towards what would be a gold standard in this particular space. And I think that's what I'm very excited about. I actually think it's a good thing that the regulators and policymakers are spending time and uh, increasing their attention in this space. It'll be a lot of ideas that will be evaluated over the next few months, years to come. And hopefully in the end, we'll have a gold standard that touches across all topics that compliance officers and risk officers and all of us uh, building financial systems care to make sure that that responsible innovation is happening, responsible technological benefits are being made available to users around the world. How does that happen is through that dialogue with the regulators. And I'm particularly excited about, about that prospect. Mandeep, I, I love the, the optimism. Let me, let me ask you a question, though, because there, there are a lot of critics out there who would say, this is a technology or, or a set of technologies, whether you're talking about the underlying blockchain technologies or the tokenization or, or DeFi itself, uh, decentralized finance, that is antithetical to the, the regulation, at least the traditional regulation we've seen, uh, which has really relied on more centralized nodes to be able to regulate, has relied on you know, know your customer rules, et cetera. How, how, in your mind, do you begin to square the circle of protecting consumers, protecting the safety and soundness of the system, protecting against illicit finance, while also adopting the technology and, frankly, investing further in, in these technologies and, and innovation? Yeah, I think I, I, I look at that with a today need that we have from a compliance perspective. And then where do we need to invest as an industry? and come up with creative solutions for the future as far as this technology is concerned. The reality is that Circle is a regulated financial institution today, and we have, to your point, 
several requirements, including including know your customer, other kinds of AML checks, which we perform and we have to perform. The question becomes in the future, if there are technologies like decentralized finance, DeFi applications that are going to become mainstream, what sorts of digital ID, other kinds of verification technologies can be implemented in these platforms uh, without leaking private information of the users and give us at least the same level of comfort we get today when we do KYC with an individual institution to institution from a central central processing perspective. So if, if we are able to create an automated way to actually verify users, again, without leaking private information as an example, if we are able to continue solidifying what kind of monitoring tools are out there to identify the bad actors in a much more real-time manner, work with law enforcement to make those important conclusions available to law enforcement so, so they can take action timely. Uh, and there are several other ideas out there that the industry is working on. So I, again, I think about this as today we have to do certain things. We have tools that we're implementing, but for this to really become a mainstream adopted technology in the future, we would have to innovate as, a, as an industry from a technology perspective. I love that, Mandeep, because it, it holds the promise of, of not just technology helping to solve some of these problems, but what you just laid out is the private sector itself having a key role in shaping what the regulatory expectation should be. Uh, and I think that's incredibly powerful and, and important. Uh, and, and you and Dante have been, in some ways, ev evangelists of that, which is to say, don't stifle the innovation. The innovation, in many ways, is going to lead us to where we want to go from a policy perspective. Dante, let me turn to you and maybe ask you and, and, and maybe Mandeep, too, to give folks a sense of what's happening in the stablecoin environment. Because Circle's importance is not just that you're, you're a big, important company, but you are operating one of the most important uh, stablecoins in the market globally. And that has attracted a lot of attention from the regulators, policymakers. We just had the presidential working group on financial markets come out with their long-awaited report on stablecoins. And I want to get into some of those, those recommendations because I think they're pretty stark um, and get your impressions. But can you first give the, the audience a sense of what are stablecoins, what is Circle's role in this, and, and what's the policy tension that you see playing out? Yeah, no, thanks, Juan. It, it is a great and incredibly timely question. So to define a stablecoin ultimately is to look at a digital currency that solves for the buyer's and spender's remorse that plagued the very, very early digital currencies and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, famous for the type of hypervolatility that would make high-frequency traders flinch, um, but also famous for something known as Bitcoin Pizza Day, where somebody went out and spent a couple of Bitcoins buying pizza at, I think, a Papa John's in New York, and then later realized with the, the change in its price overnight, the person spent something like $80,000 on pizza. And so <laughs> while- I hope it was good pizza. It, I mean, best pizza <laughs> you ever had. And, and maybe he kept a slice or two because you could fractionalize a pizza just like you can fractionalize a digital currency. But you know, ever since then, the question and the quest for a stable medium of exchange, a stable sort of instrument that solved for the buyers and spenders remorse became the problem statement for a stable coin. And then ultimately a stable coin like USDC emerged, which is now a three-year-old innovation 
the premise and the promise is that it would hold price stability and price parity to the US dollar by fundamentally backing it at all times, only subject to market demand with cash and short-term treasuries. And so when we built this business and we built this innovation, we also felt it was really important not to pretend the pre-existence of state money transmission rules, or for example, in other jurisdictions around the world, the pre-existence of electronic money rules didn't matter to dollars being uploaded onto the internet. So, so we also took a view that this should be a business model built around a regulation first posture. And so we built USDC and Circle as its sole issuer under US money transmission frameworks. And then over the course of three years, today it's a $41 billion digital currency. Cumulatively, it has powered more than $1.4 trillion in on-chain transactions. And candidly, it's becoming the, the greatest proxy for uploading a dollar onto the internet and supporting a whole host of activities from remittances to crypto capital markets, trading, programmable money. All of these types of use cases are in their early days. And as I had mentioned in my Senate testimony, you know, the dial-up internet experience wasn't particularly great for people, but calls to ban the internet at that exact juncture would have been really, really bad, not only for markets, consumers, but frankly, US economic competitiveness. And so I made that same analogy in the Senate. Hopefully it was heard. Well said, Dante. And, and there's been a ton of attention on stable coins. I think part of this is the pegging of, of the coins to the US dollar or US dollar equivalents and what that means systemically and from a prudential standpoint uh, in terms of safety and soundness. You, you see and hear the echoes and shadows of the 2008 financial crisis uh, in a lot of what the regulators and the Treasury Department have said. The PWG, as it's called, had a couple of really stark conclusions. Now, this is just a report, but they are recommending legislation. And I think the markets, I think you would all say as well that you've noted this report in, in pretty stark terms, which is they've said that a stable coin can only be issued by a bank, in essence, a, a federally insured depository uh, institution. So that basically means it has to be a bank that issues. It can't be a commercial entity. It can't be a just a fintech. It can't be a VASP. So that's pretty stark. There's also a, you know, a finding there about ensuring that there isn't too much economic power congregated in one entity, and in particular, a limitation on commercial entities' ability to issue stable coins. And I think that was a, a brushback to Facebook and to other big retailers that, are, that may seek to, to issue stable coins. So a really powerful report in some ways, but potentially not coincident with where the market was heading. So Dante, can you speak to that? And then Mandeep, I want to I want to get your impressions as to how you think regulators respond to this. You're right that it was a 23-page report that on the one hand signaled the innovation is too big to ignore, but not too big to fail. So I I I respect the temperament and I respect the recommendations at the highest level on behalf of Circle, but personally as well, because I obviously carry the first line and frontline experiences of having been at the, the cutting edge or the operation human shield edge of the digital currency conversation around the world um, over the last three or four years now. And so I applaud that, that broad recommendation. I do take, however, and again, I'll say this in a personal capacity, a little bit of reservation that these innovations should be backed in strictly into banking 
when what the better model should be activity-based, technology-neutral approaches to regulation. And then I always add one more adjoinder to that when it comes to crypto assets and digital assets. Regulate the economic behavior of the digital asset and not, not create a catch-all where every one of these are created equal. The same holds true with stablecoins. And I think the, the president's working group observed that. Not all stablecoins are created equal. And not all of them in, in the defensive circle in USDC are a part of an internet funny money, wild, wild west. And so this is where we have a lot of learning yet to do. And the other point, I think it's also a little bit beyond the times is this notion of a stable coin Glass-Steagall provision that would separate kind of an issuer from the, the economic participant and the rest. And, and we think USDC functionally, because it is developed across multiple non-proprietary non technology standards and blockchains, is a pro-competition innovation. So I think hidden in the PWG's recommendation of this kind of stablecoin Glass-Steagall provision is this notion of promoting competition. We agree with that broadly, and we agree that an open internet standard, public blockchains, open source technology standards enable a lot of competition. A lot of stablecoin projects look like monetary airline miles. They're usable if you fly on one network, but we think this concept of an internet of value does have to compete and be very wide open for many, many users, including banks uh, in that value chain. Mandeep, how, how do you see this playing out, uh, the PWG report with regulators, how you've thought about Circle's role in issuing and operating USDC? You know, what, what's, what's your reaction and, and how do you see the environment unfolding? From my perspective, I think, I think regulators will ultimately decide whether they're going to adopt the PWG report exactly the way it is. It'll, there'll be a requirement to become a bank, et cetera. But regardless of where that goes, I think there are certain fundamental core requirements that the regulators will focus on. And that's what Circle is also trying to do is how do we create our culture? How do we create our operating environment? How do we create our controls with the best framework in mind, which could be a banking framework today, which could be the money transmitter framework, we're trying to take the best of all these different frameworks that exist today. We are evolving on that, but we are ready for whatever will become that what I call gold standard previously. So in my mind, making sure that you've got the right risk management and compliance, governance structures in the company. So before products are launched, before new innovations are actually implemented, has the company thought through, has Circle thought through, our counterparties thought through, the broader industry thought through specific requirements and risks that come out of their innovation? Uh, what are the consumer and investor protection issues that exist with that, with that particular innovation, that particular technology, which could be byproducts of the stablecoin stable product itself? How the reserves are managed? How do we make sure that we have internal controls in place, which gives us all the confidence we need to interface with any regulator in the world and actually say, we are managing those reserves at the top-notch quality that exists in the industry? Uh, how do we think about financial crime? Uh, regardless of whether it's a bank or not, we believe that financial crime must be prevented and must be detected, and we've got to have all the right monitoring in place. So we are going to implement that as well, and that's, that's the way I think the regulators will look at it as well. And broadly speaking, operational risk, that broad category, is going to become very, very important in the stablecoin space, making sure that if there are any issues in open systems that have to be accounted for that, is, that are currently not being thought through, I think those factors will become very important from a regulatory perspective. 
Mandy, very helpful. And, and I think it's worth mentioning to the audience, and, and it's an important baseline for our discussion, that Circle had already made a lot of these decisions prior to the PWG report. And frankly, your decision announced in August to want to become a bank to, to seek a national charter, in some ways forecasted a bit of this, this challenge. It also maybe creates a little bit of a complication, right? Because you are seen not just as a bank applicant, but you are also a systemically important player in the stablecoin system. So, Andy, how do you how do you see the the bank? You don't have to speak to the bank application process itself, of course, but how do you see this playing out as Circle tries to be more and more of a central player in the digital financial system? Yeah, from from our perspective, we think about all these risks, we think about the control requirements that we have, and we are building the best possible uh, operating environment to address those risk and control requirements. The way we think this plays out is as uh, the bank charter uh, requirements get pushed down by the regulators, we interface with them, we have an open dialogue early in the process, we walk them through our thinking, we take input from them, we implement changes that we need to implement. At the same time, we keep collaborating with our current regulators that are the state money transmitters and other regulators globally. And we make sure that they fully understand what our environment looks like. And if, if there's any feedback from them, we implement that as well. So essentially the way I see, see this one is we, we focus on our operating environment and all the regulatory requirements that come out, reporting requirements and audits and exams, et cetera, become byproducts of our own strength internally. That's the way we look at it philosophically. Maybe just one of the questions strikes me, Mandeep, uh, and this is a discussion you, Dante, and I have had before offline, which is to do what you want to do and to, to have the kind of financial system and innovation you want. You need not just regulatory flexibility or at least insights and adaptability, but also all of the players and stakeholders in the digital financial uh, system to be sort of playing the same game, or at least to be working with the same set of expectations. Is that a challenge, Mandeep, for how you think about your operational risk, how Circle fits into the broader ecosystem? How, how do you think about that? The way I think about it is that it is, it is evolving, right? It's, it's, it's an important risk factor where we are not operating in a vacuum. We have to interface with other exchanges who may be customers of ours. And there could be other uh, other service providers and entities that are not customers of us. And we want to make sure that collectively as an industry, we are interfacing with the regulatory community and the policymaking community in a manner that gets them comfortable broadly so that the mainstream adoption of this technology is much stronger. So we have a vested interest from a circle company perspective, but even broadly from a, ultimately, what are the goals of what we're trying to do, financial inclusion, disintermediation, making things faster, cheaper. We need the entire industry to sort of increase its standard and the interaction with the regulators gets better over time, hopefully. Uh, the way I think about it as a compliance officer is there are obviously different kinds of entities we interact with. Some entities go through our risk assessment process, our monitoring, and we feel that their standards are high and we feel really good about them. And then there are others the scale may not be as high as far as like those entities are concerned. And we work with them, we give them feedback. And uh, for some entities, we get there. And for some entities, we decide 
they are not within our risk appetite to engage with them at this very at this very moment and then when we think about innovative technologies again like defi and daos etc we are taking a very sensible risk based approach to understanding what exactly is happening with that particular defi protocol is it safe for our customers is it safe for the industry and then we make risk aware decisions based on that mandy i appreciate that so much because i think part of the uh, challenge in this ecosystem is the lack of current maturity around risk management and it it goes for not just the industry but for the regulators themselves right not all cryptos the same not all stable coins the same not all vasp are the same not all jurisdictions regulating are the same right and you know that's a maturity that's played out in the financial system in different ways over time and frankly is it still imperfect in many ways we're just at the cusp of that and what you described is something incredibly mature in the system i think around how you and circle manage risk so thank you for that illumination dante let me ask you this because you've talked a lot you've written a ton so anyone who's interested in cutting edge thinking in the space you need to look up dante desparte's writing uh, not just his testimony but his his op-eds and, and other thoughts but dante you've written and spoken a lot about the positive use cases of the technology. You mentioned it earlier. Can you give listeners some examples of how you and Circle are thinking about financial inclusion and innovation in the payment space uh, to address some of the, the gaping policy needs that are out there? No, thank, thank you, Juan. And, and, uh, and now I owe you a royalty for every time I get a new reader or follower. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can go out to dinner. How's that? There you go. There you go. So, yeah, no question. I think for, for me, and I know Mandeep, this is uh, you know equally shared by Mandeep and other very senior leaders at the company. Um, Circle's mission statement is to raise global economic prosperity through the frictionless exchange of financial value. Stablecoin innovations got criticized in a in a recent report issued by the World Economic Forum, saying that you know a three year old innovation has failed on the financial inclusion test. And what I said in the Senate testimony on this point was. Neither a dollar nor a digital currency has agency when it comes for solving financial inclusion problems. However, what a digital dollar does that a physical dollar does not is it lowers the fundamental cost of transmission and it, and it enables a whole, it removes one of the barriers to why people are unbanked or underbanked. It's that it's expensive to be banked. And so we think we can't just allow for um, the financial inclusion problem to be addressed uh, at the technological level. This is why we announced an initiative called Circle Impact. Um, four pillars in that initiative, brand new, announced perhaps in anticipation of these hearings, but certainly not because of them, but announced nonetheless as a way of putting some, adding some fuel to the fire of what is already a big aspirational mission statement as a company. One of the models is to allocate a share of the reserves backing USDC to minority depository institutions and community banks across the country, making sure that the future of money and payments is more inclusive than the past. We think it's a great way to strengthen those balance sheets and strengthen those communities. The second is relating to digital financial literacy. As our own conversation has um, underscored one, these are new topics, new areas, new technologies but underpinning the same old behaviors in the financial system where greed and all these other things can be either amplified or tampered or, or, or tampered with technology. So we want to make sure 
that that people have access to digital financial literacy, fintech entrepreneurialism, and can lever the open source technology standards that we're building on around the world and inside the U.S. The second area is about humanitarian interventions, an area I know you you have tracked very closely over your career and that really matter because in many cases, heightened issues like in Afghanistan, for example, where the entire financial system is in the wrong hands. Currently, we live in a compliance model that would say, well, the entire country or the entire continent has to be cut off because of the risk of one bad actor making one bad payment. These technologies pose game changers for corruption-resistant movement of money, and we want to make sure that it's not an exception whenever there's a humanitarian intervention, whether it's inside the United States or around the world, that Circle Services, USDC, and a coalition of actors can engage with these technologies for rapid intervention there too. So that's the, that's the last pillar of our Circle Impact Initiative. And we think fundamentally, if we do those few things well, they will animate our mission as a company. They'll make an enormous difference for people when they need it the most. And over time, digital financial inclusion will just be the operating reality because of the 1.7 billion people who are unbanked on the planet, a billion of them have access to, to an internet-connected mobile phone. And if that mobile phone becomes a compliant payment endpoint, then there's no excuse for why people are unbanked or un- underbanked. Dante, I'm, I'm so happy you mentioned the humanitarian channel issue because it, that has become such a major challenge in the sanctions world. We saw the administration note that they needed to take humanitarian issues greater, uh, more into account in the application of sanctions. And we know that that has to be the case. And we also have seen that the challenge in some of these regions, especially conflict zones, or in countries or jurisdictions or regions where we know that bad actors, criminal actors, rogue states are in control of every element of the commercial or financial system, the problem of how you ensure that the capital that is flowing into that environment gets to the right hands, the the last mile problem, as it's often called, has bedeviled the development community, the financial community, and has really been a, a challenge from a humanitarian perspective. So I'm very happy you mentioned that. There's been the example of Venezuela that's been now chronicled well, something we were looking at for a number of years, which allowed for the example of the use of crypto to get the means by which aid and other foodstuffs and things could get into the right hands in Venezuela when the currency was worthless, the leadership was corrupt, and the sanctions and risk environment was incredibly high. And so how do you use crypto, blockchain technologies with the NGO community to get what's needed into the right hands. And that prospect is really powerful. Yeah, well, and as you know, that particular case, and mercifully was chronicled in a very deep article recently in the Financial Times, was USDC and Circle Powered. And again, that demonstrates the art of the possible in an incredibly acute, complex environment, where by traditional analog methods of moving money, the only other alternative would be physical pallets of cash dropped into a geo-reference zone uh, so that it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. But as you know very well, and I've spent a good part of my career in and around the humanitarian supply chain all over the world, um, a pallet of cash is a honeypot for corruption, bribery, and fraud. The very social ills a lot of the world and a lot of the policymakers and regulators in the US and elsewhere are trying to solve. If you want to animate it and invigorate it, drop a pallet of cash in a complex environment. 
Um, so we think the use of USDC in the Venezuela example should not be a one-off. And the Circle Impact project I just mentioned is really designed to build public-private partnerships for corruption-resistant you know, uh, mobilization of aid, where point-to-point information and point-to-point source-to-use source uh, assurance and compliance exist. Mandeep, let me, let me come back to you, sort of the other side of the coin, right? Because observers of the crypto economy say, look, this enables illicit, the illicit economy, gives access to capital to those who, who otherwise wouldn't be able to get a bank account or something like that. How do you think about managing the illicit finance risks in this environment, especially when you do have decentralized nodes or elements of the system, unhosted wallets is a, is a good example. How do you think about the ability to manage those risks, especially given uh, Circle's role in, in this ecosystem? I think it's a cascading uh, level of uh, controls that exist and we rely on to get comfortable that in the end, the illicit finance problem is not, is not as large as people perceive it to be, right? So from a Circle perspective, we have very strong controls where we have entities coming in as potential customers. We perform KYC on them. We perform risk assessments on them. We make sure that any monitoring that needs to be set up on those customers are set up appropriately. And then those customers go and transact on the blockchain. And yes, unhosted wallets are part of the ecosystem as well. And then we have monitoring that happens on the, on the open blockchain with several uh, analysis tools that are available. And so we've implemented an intelligence unit uh, in our company that monitors that, looks at any patterns of issues that might be potentially suspicious. So we look at that very carefully. Uh, we work very closely with our customers who might be observing other issues from their perspective. So it's a collection of these controls that, uh, that, that get implemented for us to get comfortable. Andy, by just listening to you, I, I, I'm sure there are listeners who aren't well-sighted on compliance, not just systems, but also the maturity of, of what Circle's doing or folks like Coinbase and others that have been regulated for some time, because I think there's a perception of a wild, wild west dimension to, to the environment. So to hear you lay out that sort of strata of controls and, and mechanisms, very, very important and interesting. We're running a little short on time here. I think we can go on for another hour. Let me ask you each just a Maybe a final question. Dante, you've talked a lot about the competition with China. There's obviously a ton of attention on what that competition looks like over time and the competition in the digital financial space. You know, can you speak to how you see that competition playing out? You have a, a positive but cautionary view, I think, on this and, and love the mm -hmm. listeners to hear your point of view. First of all, I, I should just point out that I'm not someone who believes in a zero-sum world. And um, the better part of my career with think tanks and nonpartisan groups like the American Security Project and others has been animated by the question of, there is no worse adversary and there's no ill that can be visited upon the United States by an outside actor that we wouldn't do worse to ourselves. And in a world in which we can't compete in a world in which we can't move dollars quickly on the internet and in a world in which, as we saw with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, so many of the things in our fortress nation were very quick to break. That tells you a lot about the, the inherent vulnerabilities that we, that we have. And so while some are saying, 
unless the United States and the Federal Reserve issues a central bank digital currency, we will lose ground to China and other potential countries. My view is that the sum of all the free market activity taking place in the US, where USDC, companies like Circle, and many others are calling this the jurisdiction of choice, that has allowed us, at least for the time being, to gain ground in this digital currency space race, right? Where the movement of money is a national security issue, a geoeconomic issue. And candidly, it's a choice that we have to make as a society of do you want the dollar to be the currency on the internet or not? To have the government do that would be the equivalent of the FAA building jet engines and flying planes. I think the FAA can keep the airspace safe, designate responsible conduct and travel, and control that airspace. And I think the banking and regulatory system has a hard similar choice to make about where digital assets exist and how are they inside that perimeter. Right now, that choice is not being made in a harmonized way in Western countries. And that's where I think we're losing an enormous amount of ground. And the last quick point is the rails on which that value transfer moves draws very close parallels to the 5G wars. And, and the concept of privacy erosion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that might come with that, not being conversant with rules and FinCEN and OFAC and all the rest is the real geopolitical jeopardy. So we think you could have it all ways. You could have financial inclusion, innovation, and financial integrity. They're not trade-offs, but we do need to revisit a lot of the rules that were made pre the technologies that we're talking about. Yeah, you're right, Dante. And the competitions at the systemic level, the data level, the tools and, and uh, implement level. Yeah. Mandeep, maybe a final thought from you on kind of what's exciting for you. What, what, are you, what are you looking forward to in the space, especially as we hit 2022? Yeah, what's exciting for me is really making digital financial systems more mainstream, solving real problems on a very large scale. And I personally believe that DeFi is a huge part of that promise. Uh, and then the, the next conversation from that becomes the technological solutions that we need to de-risk DeFi and other sort of innovations in that space to achieve that mainstream adoption. So uh, how do we use the transparent ledgers that we have, blockchain that we have, and create tools that can get us comfortable with all the risks that we talked about previously? And once we do that, um, we should be in good shape and go to the next level of the mainstream adoption. And then partnership with the regulatory community. I think working very closely with them uh, giving ideas to them, getting ideas from them, and uh, hopefully the public-private partnership takes the entire industry to the right place. Phenomenal. Again, I would love to talk to both of you and uh, have the listeners benefit from it for, for minutes and hours longer. But we are uh, done with this session of FinCast. Mandeep, Dante, I want to thank you for your time, your insights, your work. Uh, you've underscored how important this space is somewhat how complicated and how uh, quickly it's changing. And I want to thank you and your colleagues for all the work you're doing. Thank you for joining me, Mandeep and Dante. Thank you, Juan. Thanks so much, Juan. That's it for this episode of FinCast. Join us again next time. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.